Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 10. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This short passage of scripture is what theologians call uh, the Beatitudes. And if you're at all like me, when, when you encounter a list of things in the Bible, it's near impossible not to immediately think of it as a kind of to-do list. So it might go something like this, like how to be hashtag blessed. Okay, I got to be poor in spirit, so that means I, I stop worrying so much about money, right? I, I got to be one of those who mourns, so I take, start taking things more seriously. I'm going to be meek, so stop being such a jerk. Hunger for righteousness, stop sinning. Merciful, forgive others, got that one. Pure in heart, stop lusting, stop coveting. Peacemakers, I got to... I'm stop arguing all the time. I, I could probably delete Twitter. Persecution, well, I know this must be God's way of reminding me that I don't share my faith often enough. Right? The, tr- the truth is when, when I see lists like this, they, they really, they just do very, very little to motivate me to change. See, I want to be blessed by God. But, but all that happens when I focus on trying to do these things is that I feel guilty when I fail. And, and if meeting these standards is like the, the kind of entrance exam to the kingdom of heaven, then I figure I'm probably not getting in. And I don't know, maybe you feel the same way when you encounter these kind of lists. Well, I've got some good news because this morning we're going to look at what the Beatitudes really are and kind of spoiler alert, they are not a to-do list. We're also going to look at what is the kingdom of heaven and then we're going to take a closer look at the first of the Beatitudes and see what truth that it contains for our lives today. So what are these Beatitudes? You know, when we look at this passage of Scripture Uh, on the page, it stands out because Jesus started every sentence with the same word, blessed. Some of of your translations may say happy, which which is an okay translation, I guess. The the Latin word for blessed comes from uh, the root beatus. And so that, it's as simple as that. That's why theologians refer to these as the Beatitudes. They just wanted to make it harder for the rest of us to understand. <laughs> the concept of a blessing is, is a little bit complex, okay? Because we, we tend to think of a blessing as receiving something that makes our life richer. 
But scripture not only tells us that God gives us blessings, but it also tells us that we give blessings to God. Deuteronomy 8.10, you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord, your God, for the good land he has given you. God doesn't need us to enrich his life. So, so what then is this blessing? Well, it seems like when we, when we bless God, it's often in the form of expressing gratitude for what he has done, for what he has done through giving praise. And what, what we're doing is we're saying to God that we approve of what he's done. Psalm 104 Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Now, when we show approval to God, it's never in a condescending way. You know, like, like how we might give approval to a child, right? Like we, we give children positive reinforcement uh, to, you know, encourage them to continue to have good behavior, that's not what we do with God. Instead, we're, we show approval through adoration and worship. On the other hand, when, when God is blessing us, he can't help but be condescending, right? Because he's God and we're not. But nevertheless, when God is blessing us, it's an expression of his approval. It's not done to manipulate us into better behavior, it's purely motivated by his perfect love for us. So at first glance, when we look at the Beatitudes, we think, oh, Jesus is showing us a way where we can find more blessing, where we can find more happiness in our lives. But, but that's not what he was doing. What, what he's doing is he's making a shocking revelation about what it is that God values. These Countercultural characteristics, these are what God approves of. See, we tend to value things like power and strength and uh, self-confidence and wealth and independence. But in as much as these otherwise good things distract us from being reliant on him, God values their opposites a lot more. There's another important aspect of the Beatitudes that we, we need to have firmly in our mind as we go about examining them, and, and that is this. They have a very particular context. Now, in ancient Hebrew and Greek, they, they did not have punctuation, and they didn't have things like headings. So, so when you look in your Bible, and, it, and there's a little heading there, and it says, the Beatitudes... That was added there by the publisher. They put it there to help you to, so that you would understand that this section of Scripture is kind of set apart uh, from the rest of it. And they also added other things like commas and periods and question marks and, and verse numbers and uh, breaks between paragraphs. All that stuff is not in the original text. They're added there for the sake of our translation. And because of this kind of... Um, limitation on, on the language, Jesus spoke using a literary device that we call an inclusio. An inclusio is just a way of organizing words so that the reader or the listener would know the context of a particular passage. 
And here's how it works in our passage. You'll see in the first line, it says, uh, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus goes and he lists, you know, six more beatitudes. And then on the last one in verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And here he repeats the exact same wording as in verse 3. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is like putting brackets around the whole thing. He's making a sandwich. And the the ancient person who was listening to this, uh, they, they would have heard the repetition and they would have known that, that the first line and the last line and everything in between was all in the context of the kingdom of heaven. So now we see that the Beatitudes, they are a list of characteristics that God approves of within the kingdom of heaven. But what is the kingdom of heaven? When we hear the word heaven, a lot of us, Immediately, we start thinking about the pearly gates and like fluffy clouds and you know, naked angels playing tiny harps. We, we think of heaven as a place, right? Uh, it's in the spiritual realm, and this is a place we will only go to after we die. Well, the Bible actually teaches that, that heaven will be right here. Jesus is going to come back. He is making all things new. He's restoring all of his creation to its former glory, and we will live with him for all eternity in the new heaven and earth right here. But wherever it is, heaven as a physical place is not what Matthew was writing about. In fact, Jesus probably said the kingdom of God, but Matthew followed an ancient Jewish uh, tradition of never speaking or writing the name of God out of respect for him. So what he did was he would say kingdom of heaven in the place of kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not so much of a place, but kind of a a concept, right? God has dominion over all of his creation. And this dominion, this authority according to scripture, has been given to Jesus Christ specifically. And what that means is that Jesus is king, right? It's Palm Sunday. We're acknowledging that Jesus is king over all of God's dominion. King, dominion, kingdom. And there's no geographical boundaries around Jesus' reign. He is king of all that there is. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so in this sense, everyone, regardless of whether or not they believe in Jesus, they are subject to his authority, even if they don't yet realize it. We might call this like the universal kingdom. But in Scripture, when we see it referred to the kingdom of God... It is referring only to those people who follow Jesus. If we look at John 3, verses 3 and 5, uh, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, and this is what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
And then in verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So all of creation is in the universal kingdom, but only those who are born again enter into the kingdom of God and experience the blessings we see in the Beatitudes. And finally, we have to keep in mind that the kingdom of God has a kind of now and not yet nature to it, right? When Jesus first came, he inaugurated his kingdom. And it won't be fully consummated until his second coming. So if we believe in Jesus Christ, we can experience the kingdom of God now. But we won't experience the fullness of it until he returns and makes all things new and puts an end to the enemy and the enemy's followers and all of our sin natures. That's the now and not yet of Christ's rule and reign. So to kind of summarize all of this this teaching, the, the Beatitudes are a description of what life for the Christian will be like as they enter into the kingdom of God. It's a countercultural life, and it's full of blessing amidst all of the hardship that we will endure until Christ returns. So now I think we're, we're kind of ready to examine the first of these Beatitudes, and, and Pastor Ryan will take us through uh, the rest of them over the next few weeks. But let's see what it means for us to be poor in spirit. Je- Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we don't normally associate poverty with anything good. And this is just one of the many ways that Jesus turns everything kind of upside down in his kingdom. Matthew 19.30, Jesus said, Many who are first will be last, and the last first. And, and right away when we look at this beatitude, it kind of, it kind of confirms what we were just talking about. The poor in spirit have the kingdom of heaven already. This is not a future tense statement. It's not something that happens later when Jesus returns or when we die, but it happens right now in this moment. We have the kingdom of heaven. Now, it does have a future connotation as well. Those who are in the kingdom of God now will be in the kingdom of God for all eternity but Jesus specifically was speaking in the present tense. And so that brings us to this question, like who are the poor in spirit? Who are those who experience the kingdom of God now? Well, there's a very common word in ancient Greek that uh, could be translated as poor. And it would refer to a person who does not own any property. And therefore, they have to Be a part of the working class. Jesus did not use that word. Instead, he chose a word that refers to a person who is literally destitute, who possesses absolutely nothing of value. They are so poor that they have to live the life of a lowly beggar just to survive. And in fact, the word has this like secondary connotation of cowering, of crouching over, 
of being made low. And the word for spirit is, it's really straightforward. It's the, it's the word in the New Testament that is used when we're referring to things that are of spirit or are spiritual in nature. So what, what did Jesus mean when he put these two words together? A destitute beggar of a spiritual nature. Well, first, let's just look at uh, three, three things that poor in spirit does not refer to you. First of all, it's not referring to a spirit of poverty, okay? Je- Jesus is not suggesting that everyone in his kingdom divest themselves of everything they have of any value and live as beggars on the street. See, Scripture's full of wisdom, right, on stewardship and generosity and, and maintaining a household and being good employees. There's warnings about the danger that comes from a love of money, and the admonitions against greed and idolatry and covetousness. But Jesus is not making a call to us that we make ourselves destitute. It's also not referring to a poverty of spirituality. Jesus is not, of course, suggesting that we should try to get rid of all the spirituality in our lives. That would, that would kind of be absurd and it would be directly contradictory to his other teaching about uh, living by the Spirit and his command that we baptize people in the name of the Holy Spirit. And finally, it's not referring to having a poor spirit. You know, you, you think about, sometimes there's just people, that, they don't have the spirit of what's, of what's going on around them. Like everyone's cheering for the team except for, for this guy, or, or everyone's enjoying this party except for the, the sad guy in the corner, or, or there's some group who's working towards a common goal, and this guy just doesn't get it. Apathetic and uncaring. They don't have any sense of the spirit of what's going on. This is certainly not what Jesus is calling us to be like. So what does poor in spirit actually mean? Well, do you remember last week, Pastor Ryan was, was teaching us that the Sermon on the Mount and really all of Jesus' ministry is all about repentance. Being poor in spirit is the deepest kind of repentance. To be poor in spirit means that, that we acknowledge that we are completely devoid of anything that's of value to God that could that could possibly help us earn his approval. It means confessing that we are totally depraved, that there is no aspect of our being that has not been tainted and touched by the presence of sin. It means that we agree with God about the the need for the good news of his gospel. So I want to look at three ways that those in the kingdom of God are poor in spirit. The first is in our salvation. At the most basic level, poor in spirit is all about salvation. See, when mankind sinned against God, we were separated from him because God is perfectly holy and he can't abide our sin. And this created a major problem for us because because, uh, we, we couldn't find our way there in our own strength. 
But God loved us so much that he provided a solution for us. He sent his son Jesus to live that sinless life that we could never live and, and to pay the penalty for our sin, which is a sinner's death on a cross. So that, as John 3.16 tells us, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, if we believe this and we choose to follow Jesus, then we are born again into new life and we are in the kingdom of God. But we have to come as beggars. See, this is what Jesus was trying to do. He was saying uh, that the Jews of his day They were all caught up in this idea that they could earn their salvation. They worked very hard to follow all the laws of the Old Testament, and and they even created hundreds of new laws that they were trying to follow as well. And they thought that if they were obedient enough, that God would approve of them and bring them into the kingdom of God. Some believe that just because they were Jewish, that they were God's chosen people, that this meant that God approved of them. They were not coming to God as beggars, but they had all their good works and, and fancy pedigrees that they were holding up to God, expecting that he would be impressed by that. And this is what Jesus was trying to counter and address. And I believe that Jesus knew that this problem wasn't just about the Jews of his day, because because really, we're not that, that far off in our own time, are we? People are living their lives. They're trying to be good people. They never do anything that's that bad. They have the right intentions. And they think that this is somehow going to impress God when it matters. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 3, you know, he, he, he was saying, if anyone else thinks that they have reason for confidence. I have more. And then he goes on to talk about how he was such an excellent Jew, and he was from the best tribe of Israel, and that he zealously obeyed the law, and and he was even a teacher of the law. But then he goes on and he says this, Philippians 3, 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Those who have the kingdom of heaven are only those who don't try to enter through their own works. Those who know they are spiritually bankrupt and they're trying, I mean, they're relying entirely on Jesus' righteousness. But this goes beyond just that moment of our salvation. It, it, it's part of the culture of the kingdom. The way that we live day by day And another way that we are poor in spirit is in our confession. At New City, one of our core values is that we are humbled by grace and depending on the Spirit. You see, once we're in this kingdom of God, then we're immediately confronted by by all the rest of the Beatitudes. 
and all the other teachings of Christ and all the teachings of the apostles and all the teachings of the prophets who went before them. And just as we could not enter into the kingdom on our own, we discover that we continue to be unable to fulfill the standards of the kingdom on our own. We want to be the kind of church where it's okay to admit that, that we continue to struggle and that we can only find freedom through reliance on the Holy Spirit. Jesus died so that we could have life and that more abundantly now, not later when he returns. This is why he sent us the Holy Spirit to be with us in the meantime. Galatians 5 tells us that if we walk by the Spirit, not by our Spirit, because remember, we're poor in Spirit, but if we walk by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, it says if we walk by the Holy Spirit, we will not gratify the sinful desires of our flesh. Yet so often we find ourselves getting caught up in trying to be good enough to gain God's approval, just like we did before we believed. We forget how poor we are, and we start trying to be good little Christians, reading our Bible every day and coming to church every Sunday, giving 10% of our income back to God and praying for all the right things and going to all the right groups and being a good witness to our neighbors. These are all good things, of course, but only if we are doing them to bless God. That is, as an act of grateful worship for what he has done in us and for us. And the moment we start thinking that these things are somehow earning us favor with God, that they're going to somehow get us more blessings in our life, that's when we get off track. God provides for us because we are his, because we are a part of his kingdom, and he is responsible for us, and he loves us. And there is no quid pro quo with God. Ryan preached about culture last week, and, and it's so important that we pay attention to our tendency to try and be good enough to earn God's favor. We know that God approves of us when, we're, when we acknowledge that we're poor in spirit. But if we're not careful, we will forget this, and then here's what happens. We begin to believe that we should somehow be able to be righteous on our own. And when we believe that lie about ourselves, we begin to believe it about others. And then we look at people like, like Ryan or Dwayne or Kelly or, God forbid, me, right? And we start to think, oh, they, they have it all together. Well, that's a lie. And then we compare ourselves to that false reality and we begin to think, oh, I have to hide my sin, instead of bringing it into the light. There's no blessing in that charade. It lessens our grip on the gospel. It damages our gospel fluency. It makes it hard for us to communicate the gospel to others because we're not believing it for ourselves. I'm not saying we're going to lose our salvation. We can't because that is entirely on God. It depends on God alone but we will begin to live 
like we have. Just like we did when we first came to the kingdom, we have to acknowledge regularly that we are unable to do it on our own. We have to live a life of regular confession. And then we come face to face with God's grace and it can't help but humble us. James 5.16 says this, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Years ago, when I was caught up in a particular recurring sin, I tried over and over again to stop in my own power. And I got so discouraged by my repeated failure in this that that I began to believe the lie that maybe God just didn't care. Or maybe I wasn't actually saved. I felt like my Bible was broken. It wasn't functioning properly because I would confess my sin to God and I would mean it and I would repent and then I would immediately go right back to the same pattern of sin. And then someone showed me James 5.16 and I realized that in my pride and in my shame, I was trying to handle my sin in secret. And here it was, writing God's word, I had to involve his church. Not with a priest, but with others, with somebody who understood what it meant to be poor in spirit and unable to save themselves. And so as I brought my sin into the light, and as others began to pray with me, an interesting thing happened. I found that people did not reject me the way that I feared they would. What I discovered was that people were excited about my repentance, and and they were encouraged in their own struggles. I learned that I was not alone in my sin as they shared their struggles with me. I learned that I was not worse than everyone around me, that that had been a lie from the enemy. And I learned that when I do it God's way, the healing inevitably comes. That's it. That's the ultimate act of repentance. It's when we confess, I admit that there is a God and that he's not me. He loves me and he's the only one who can save me. Hosanna. I don't know where you are today. Maybe you've learned all this years ago and this is just a review. But if you're sitting here today and you're afraid to let others know about your struggle with sin, you're afraid to admit it loud that you are poor in spirit and that you're unable to save yourself, I encourage you to find somebody that you trust. Buy them a cup of coffee and then just bring it all out into the light and have them pray for you. And now here's the thing. They're not going to have answers. They're not going to know how to fix everything for you. But that's not what this is all about. Jesus has the power and the authority to bring about healing. And when we do it his way, that healing comes. Trust me. There's one other way that we're poor in spirit that I want to talk about quickly, and that's in our humility. Once we admit that we've got nothing in ourselves that can save us and and we come to terms with the reality that we continue to have no ability to live the Christian life without the Spirit's help, we can't help but be humbled by that. And one way this manifests itself in is in how we treat others. Knowing how destitute we are ourselves 
it becomes impossible for us to continue to judge others for how they act. We can't help but have compassion on those who are poor in spirit. And we want to share the abundance of God's grace with them. And even though their sin is still annoying and hurtful, we begin to put the words of Philippians 2.3 into practice. We do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. I remember the first time that I became a sponsor for another addict. He, he shared with me awful truths about his past. And instead of cringing and judging him as I would have done in the past, I found that I could stare right into the heart of him and not be repulsed by what I discovered there. In fact, I rejoiced in the knowledge that as he confessed, I knew he was going to find healing in Jesus. And I left that meeting shaking my head in wonder and saying, God, how can you use a man like me to help people? I have nothing to offer except to point them to you. And I can't tell you how many times that God has used me in just this way and how many times I get to the privilege of seeing God transform lives. So my challenge to you today is this. Is there someone in your life that you're holding up to a standard that, that you once had to lay down so that you could enter the kingdom of heaven? What would it look like for you to humbly accept them just as they are and simply keep pointing them to the only one who can truly bring change? I'll wrap it up today with, with one more simple question. Are you embracing the reality of being poor in spirit? Or are you continuing to hold on to the fallacy that you have to somehow prove your worth to a God who already valued you so much that he sent his son to lay down his life for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the great work that you have done in our lives. For the saving grace that comes from Christ that brings us into your kingdom. That this, on this Palm Sunday, Lord, that we can shout Hosanna, that we can call you the king of our lives today. Not in some future reality, but in the reality of today. I pray, Lord, that we will lay down our attempts and our desires to prove our worth to you and embrace being poor in spirit fully. And we thank you for your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.